Good morning. Our reading this morning is from the book of 2 Samuel. It's 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. And I'll give you a few moments to find that in your Bibles. So 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 12 to 23. Now King David was told... The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finishing, finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for that reading. Thank you, Nathan, for your introduction. And uh, good morning, everybody. Let me add my welcome. Uh, it's great to see you, uh, whether you're here regularly uh, or if this is the first time you've ever been uh, with us as a church. You're very welcome indeed, and welcome to you at home as well. As we come to this uh, the last of our uh, uh, talks in 2 Samuel uh, for the time being. Well, if you've got that passage open in front of you, it'd be very helpful uh, to uh, keep it open and you'll find an outline on the inside of the sheet. Um, but why don't we pray now as uh, we turn to God's word and ask for his help. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that your ways are not our ways, that your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so we need your help 
As we turn our attention now to your word, we pray that you'd help us to be free of distraction, help us to give our energy, our mind, our attention to these words, and that your spirit might illuminate our minds, our hearts, our lives, and our world, so that we might see Jesus and live in the light of his glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. John Calvin, the 16th century French theologian and reformer, began his most famous work, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, with these majestic and rightly famous words. He said, Nearly all wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Why did Calvin begin his massive and supremely influential work on the subject of the knowledge of God by speaking also about the knowledge of self? Well, the reason is that Calvin saw those two types of knowledge as completely inseparable and intertwined. And both of them together are key to living well in this world and in the next. So on the one hand... Calvin said, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves. And he wasn't referring there to the modern kind of psychological self-awareness, you know, the kind of knowing your personality types or anything like that. This is the 16th century. No, what Calvin meant was that when we know ourselves, we know what he called our shaming nakedness, which exposes a teeming horde of infirmities, our ignorance, vanity, and spiritual poverty. In other words, it's only when we come to terms with our desperate failure, our spiritual bankruptcy and sin, that we will begin to realize that we are not God, and we'll begin to realize our need of God. On the other hand, we cannot know God without knowing ourselves. We cannot know ourselves without knowing God. And the reason for this is that if we simply look at ourselves or look at others and judge ourselves by our own standards, we will tend, because of the pride within each of us, to see ourselves as better than we are, more wise, more holy, more righteous. And we need to begin with God who sets the standard. And as we look at God, we will be convinced of our own unrighteousness, our foulness, he called it, our folly, our impurity, and thus we will come to see our need of God. For when we see God as he has revealed himself, Calvin said, what wonderfully impressed us in ourselves will now stink in its very foolishness. And that is wisdom. Know God, know yourself, know yourself, in order to know God. And that's why our final passage in this current series in 2 Samuel is so crucial for us to understand. But as soon as I say that, I've got a little bit of work to do, haven't I? Because on the face of it, this is a story, or the second instalment of a story, about the removal of a wooden box from one part of the ancient Near East to another 3,000 years ago. And I've just said, it is crucial, crucial to human happiness, crucial to our life in this world and the next, that we understand 
this passage. Well, I want you to notice that at the heart of the passage are two contrasting emotions from two conflicting characters speaking diametrically opposed to each other from two completely different worldviews. And it's not hard to see which one the narrator favours. On the one hand, there is David, who comes to us in Becky's terms that she mentioned in in that book review with the major key. And you cannot help marvelling at his irrepressible joy and happiness, dancing and leaping semi-naked, totally careless of what anybody thinks, celebrating before the Lord with deep humility and profound joy. And then in contrast to this, the minor key, Michal, David's wife, Saul's daughter, watching on from the window, disgusted by what she sees because she's proud and in her pride she's miserable. So at the heart of this passage, which at one level is about something as remote as the removal of a wooden box into a city called Jerusalem, are two powerfully contrasted emotions, two ways to live, two ways to think, two ways to exist in God's world, joyful humility on the one hand, miserable pride on the other. And I want to suggest that those two ways of thinking, those two ways of living, those two emotions are the two that we have to choose as well. Yes, I know our situation is different to David's. None of us, I take it, are worried this week about the removal of the Ark of the Covenant. None of us are Bronze Age kings with the particular set of pressures that David was under. We are working, parenting, schooling, churching, eating, sleeping, earning, worrying about exams, worrying about jobs, getting our Christmas presents together. Our challenges are different. And yet I want to suggest that the fundamental choice, that fundamental conflict, is open to each of us. Are we going to live our lives in joyful humility or miserable pride? And what will make the difference? Knowing the God who's revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we know him, we know ourselves. And so we have two headings this week that you'll see on the sheet. The king and his God, the king and his heart. Let's start with the king and his God. Now let's begin with a quick reminder. Why was this wooden box, the Ark of the Covenant, so significant that David tried to get it out of cold storage where it had been for 70 years into Jerusalem but failed at the first attempt? Well, you may remember if you were here that this ark was a symbol of God's rule and his blessing, which are two sides of the same coin. David is king of Israel, but his kingship is going to be under the kingship of God, who reigns in heaven and whose footstool is on the earth. And the Ark of the Covenant represented that kingship, that divine, invisible kingship, where God is in heaven, but he rules on the earth. And the Ark was literally seen as his footstool, the footstool of his throne. And so the Ark... You remember both looks backwards, 
to the history of Israel so far, God's faithfulness in bringing them to this point, and it looks forward to a time when God's blessing and his rule, his kingship, is going to flow from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Because that's what the Bible story is all about. The kingdom of God filling the earth. And so this removal of the wooden box from one place into Jerusalem is actually a key step in the story of the kingdom of God. And that little box is going to contain the the sort of the keys, the code, the DNA of the future story, because David's son Solomon will then build the temple around the ark and the story will carry on and we'll get to see eventually how God's kingdom will come on this earth from this point. But you remember that the first attempt has failed. Why did it fail? Because of their failure to take God seriously. To treat God as God. And so if you look back at verse 9, David's tormented question, how can the ark of God ever come to me, is really a question about the future of our world. Whether the kingdom of God will ever come. It's a huge question. Huge significance. And we can imagine David having many sleepless nights in the three months between verse 10 and verse 12. But we, the readers, have been let in on a secret, haven't we? If you were here last week, you'll remember verse 11 and the blessing that had come to Obed-Edom. This is the exciting news that now reaches David's ears in verse 12. Now the king was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of the Lord. We're not told how God blessed this Philistine man, Obed-Edom. I've had fun during the week just imagining it. What would it be like to suddenly have this blessing of God come down? Maybe the dripping tap would stop dripping. Maybe that annoying rash on the back of your neck would just mysteriously clear up. Maybe all sorts of amazing things would start growing in his garden. Who knows what what it looked like in those first three months. But I did suggest a little bit more realistically last week that it would at least involve his wife getting pregnant. Because later in 1 Chronicles we read that God blessed this man, not obviously in these three months, but he blessed him in the flowing out of that blessing with sons and daughters and descendants. A form of blessing that is particularly notable in a book that begins, you'll remember, with a childless woman in 1 Samuel 2, singing in her song, She who is barren has borne seven children. Well, David hears the news of this blessing. And he wants it. He wants the blessing for Israel. Of course he does. And so this is the signal for David to make an attempt the second time to retrieve the ark. Verse 12, he hears about it. He immediately goes down and brings up the ark from Obed-Edom to the city of David. And notice at the end of verse 12, with rejoicing. The emphasis in that sentence falls firmly on the last word. The major key, which sets the tone for this whole episode, which we'll come back to. But first, we need to notice how different this second attempt was to the first. Look at verse 13. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. The reason the first attempt had failed 
and God's wrath had broken out ferociously against Uzzah, even though he was doing what seemed a perfectly reasonable thing to do, he put his hand out, you remember, to steady the ark, was because David and the Israelites had not taken God's holiness seriously. They had not followed the instructions God gave to Moses as to how to treat the ark. They had treated it, and therefore God, with presumption, they had lost sight that God is dangerous. And so look at verse 13 and notice that they don't make that mistake twice. They proceed with great caution. They proceed with trepidation. Not only is the ark carried this time, as it should always have been, instead of being placed on a cart, but now there are sacrifices made. And these sacrifices represent the big lesson that has been learnt about God. These sacrifices, a bull and a fattened animal, we're told, and then in verse 17, burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, are not some kind of insurance policy to keep God happy. No, they are right at the heart of the lesson that David has learned from the previous episode. In the book of Leviticus, you can find out more details of what these sacrifices are, but basically Moses explains they are an atonement for sin. Well, what does that mean? Well, picture the scene from last week. Last week, the wrath of God broke out against Uzzah and he died. This week, who dies? An animal dies instead of the man. God hasn't changed. God is still dangerous. He's still holy. But this time, it's an animal that dies in the place of the man. The animal turns away and absorbs God's wrath for sin so that the wrath of God does not fall on his people. It is an atonement, a substitute. It is crucial. Both times, someone dies. First time, Uzzah dies. Second time, an animal dies. And now the people can proceed safely. And this is why the two halves, the two stories are so different. The first begins with celebration but ends in fear and death. But the second begins with trepidation and ends in celebration, our second subpoint. Have a look then at verse 14 where we zoom in on David himself. David, we're told, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. I wonder if this took you by surprise. Here we are at this great moment of national significance. A solemn moment, a somber moment. Sacrifices being had. And here is King David dancing, half naked. What are we to make of this? Well, this passage, it will not surprise you to learn, has been used to argue for dancing in church. Maybe that is the solution. We can't sing, but we could dance, couldn't we? Obviously, in a socially distanced way. As it happens, we have a wonderful platform here. We could clear away the band and we could just play some music. We could easily do the dance, couldn't we? A little bit of liturgical dance based on 2 Samuel 6. Well, in case you're worried, let me assure you, this is entirely missing the point. Instead, we need to see two things. The first is to see that David's dancing is not some kind of pre-planned, choreographed religious ritual, but it's a spontaneous, unself-conscious expression of joy, which is actually, incidentally, 
the case whenever you see dancing in the Bible. I suspect this took David by surprise as much as anybody. See, the fact of the matter is dancing is not for everybody. And although we are expected to sing in the Bible, the same is not true for dancing. I have three daughters and one son. And I have noticed, and this is not a gender stereotypical comment at all, it's a comment about the personalities in our family. I have noticed that for my three daughters, dancing is the most natural thing in the world. It's a natural bodily response to joy. The music comes on Spotify and they're off. (laughs) Unless it's the music that I get to choose on Spotify, they don't know how to dance to 1970s post-punk. They haven't mastered that one yet. But it's not for all of us. It's not the dancing that is the thing. But it's the joy that David feels and freely expresses. And that is the second thing. That he does it without inhibition. That he does it in a way to pick up a word that he will use in a moment that is humiliating. And that's not a comment on his dancing. This is not because this is a dad dance and he's embarrassing everybody. No. It is a comment on his utter unselfconsciousness about what other people think. That is brought home to us, notice, by what he's wearing. He dances, we're told, in a linen ephod. Now we're going to see the real significance of this in a moment. But for now, just picture, if you would, the picture that we are being drawn. A linen ephod is a simple, humble garment of clothing. It's really just underwear. Perhaps a a, a nightie would be the closest we can approximate to it. You may remember back in 1 Samuel 2 that it was a linen ephod that the boy Samuel went around in during his apprenticeship with the priest in 1 Samuel 2.18. In 1 Chronicles 15, the parallel account of this passage where we get a lot more detail, we are told in verse 27 that David began this day wearing a fine robe of linen, as you'd expect of a king. And so I think the picture that we are meant to understand, and this is confirmed by Michal later, that he starts off looking like a typical king. And then as the joy of the occasion takes hold of him, he shrugs off that external shell, the fine royal robes, and he dances in his underwear. And it's at that moment, that moment of unselfconscious, joyful humiliation, that is the moment where we see David as he really is before God. You see, in all cultures, there are ways of behaving, aren't there? There are ways of behaving for royalty. Can you imagine the queen, either the real queen or the Netflix, Netflix queen, And I don't mean this disrespectfully, but can you imagine her at a royal wedding or a a gathering of Commonwealth dignitaries throwing off her dress and doing the polka in in her nightie? It would break every social convention. It would be to invite shame to lower her status in the eyes of the world. And this is exactly the point. That Israel's king will not be like other kings. He will be humble. He will dance, we are told. Before the Lord, a phrase that occurs six times in the passage. The point is David 
the mighty warrior is not thinking about himself or his royal reputation. He is not allowing himself to be defined by what other people think. He's not looking in the mirror of other people's expectations. He doesn't care one who what people think. He is secure in his own skin because this day is about God and he dances before the Lord. It's not often I quote a pope, still less in the same sermon as John Calvin. But Pope Gregory the Great sums it up well when he says this. By fighting, David overcame his enemies. But by dancing, he overcame himself. David is careless of his reputation, his status. He doesn't care what people think. He is a man who is wonderfully, joyfully free. But it's at this point that a discordant note is heard. Verse 16. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. The narrator momentarily shifts our attention away from David and shows us another point of view. At this high point of the nation, for the kingdom, a moment of overwhelming joy and unity, there is still a division. And the lines of the division is drawn very tellingly, isn't it? Notice how Michal is described. You may remember that she is actually David's wife, who you may remember with some sympathy, having given to him by Saul, taken back from Saul, remarried, then sent back by Ishbosheth. She's been this kind of political um, sort of toy, and we may feel some sympathy for her. But notice she's referred to here as Michal, daughter of Saul. It's an important postscript to the running contrast between David and Saul. Although she loved and rescued David, interestingly enough, by lowering down from a window to escape her father, now she looks down from another window, and it's very much her father's view that she adopts. It's a reminder that Saul and David saw kingship in different ways. For Saul, it was all about the pomp, the splendor, the privilege. For David, it's all about God. And that makes all the difference in the world. Well, before these themes come to a head in a moment, look with me how this day ends on a climax of reconciliation. For David, his work with the ark is now done. And it's important to notice the sense of completion that we reach in these few verses. First, the ark comes to its destination at last, verse 17. Secondly, they make sacrifices and offerings. Thirdly, he blesses the people in the name of the Lord, wishing that blessing that Obed-Edom received to flow out to the rest of them. And finally, verse 19, notice the food. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. What is this? Is it like the politician giving out badges and balloons or something like that? No, this is crucially important. This is about food, which in the Bible and all cultures is not about just sustenance, but it's about fellowship. It's about reconciliation. Having a meal with those who were estranged, who are now back in your relationship. This is why inside the 
tent of the tabernacle was a table with 12 place settings, one for each of the tribes of Israel. This is why in Isaiah 55, which we're going to look at after Christmas, the new creation is seen as a feast. This is why Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven as a banquet, eating a meal in the presence of God. That holy God whose wrath broke out against Uzzah is in fact the goal of the whole story. And notice this lovely note of, conf- of inclusion stressed by the narrator. Each person, the whole crowd, men and women, and then they all go home. And so David's question in verse 9 is answered. How can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? Or as it was put in 1 Samuel 6, who can stand before the Lord, this holy God? Or as David said in chapter 24, verse 3, who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? And that question captures the tension that God is both dangerous and good. And you can't have one without the other. And it's answered now by atonement, by a sacrifice that covers shame and guilt and brings God's people into his presence with a feast of joy. Well, this is what it's like, as Becky, the other Becky, reminded us earlier. When the sun rises, when hope comes, this is our God, the God who brings his good rule who makes himself known in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so can I ask you, at this halfway point, do you know him? And if you do know him, does that knowledge of God lead to a knowledge of self that brings joy? Well, that's our second point, the king and his heart. See, it's a little bit disappointing, isn't it, that we reach the end of this episode, the end of this series, not on the high note of celebration, but on the sour note that Michal introduces, but it's crucially important that we come back to it. Verse 20. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, disrobing in the sight of his slave girls, of the servants of his slave girls, as any vulgar fellow would. The dialogue between David and Micah reveals two contrasting ways of thinking. Not just about what it means to be king, but more importantly about what it means to know God, leading to two outcomes of misery and joy. Firstly, look with me at Micah's way of thinking, which she expresses with biting sarcasm. She's watched David from the window and she does not like what she sees. We're told she despises him in her heart, verse 16. And now we see the reason why. That David has not behaved as kings should behave. The word translated distinguish in verse 20 is an important word from earlier in the story. It's the word honoured or glorified. It's a word that's got to do with weightiness. And that word disrobed that she actually uses three times in the original is important as well. Just have a look at the translation that I've put on the screen, a more literal translation. How the king of Israel has glorified himself this day when he uncovered himself today in the sight of his slave girls, of his servants, when he uncovered himself like any vulgar fellow would uncover himself. 
at one level, this tells you that Michal has a view of what it means to be king, and it's not to behave like this. It is to keep the linen robes on, to act with pride and dignity, to be the nation's hero. You know, that one who first captured her heart when, she, when he fought Goliath. The slave girls of the servants are the lowest of the low in her world. David has subverted her view of status. It's like the queen not just throwing off her dress and dancing in a nighty, but doing it in front of the most junior stable boy. No wonder she looks on and despises. But there's even more to see. Back in 1 Samuel 4, when the ark was sent into exile among the Philistines, Phinehas' wife declared, the glory of Israel has departed. Now, on the very day that the glory has returned, what does she say? The glory has departed because you took off your clothes. Here we're seeing two different views of glory. Her view is to do with status that comes from the world, where what matters is strength and power and might and reputation. But notice, please, her misery. The last line of the passage, verse 23, and Michal, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. This is not as sometimes suggested because David refused to sleep with her again. It's part of the judgment that is brought on the house of Saul to bring it to an end with no heir. And it's the logical reversal, the outcome of her choice. Remember the blessing of Hannah in 1 Samuel 2. She who is barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. Here is the denial of the blessing of God on Obed-Edom coming to her. And so she now lives with her choice and the misery of Hannah with which the book began. <clears throat> but now we come to the contrast. David's joy of humble confidence. Have a look with me carefully at verses 21 and 22. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I'll become even more undignified than this, and I'll be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. What matters to David, and what gives him this joyful freedom, is what the Lord thinks. His security and identity do not come from the reflected glory of people whose pride is strength and frame. Fame, sorry, but from knowing God, it's a little bit like, and I stress the little bit, Tyson Fury. Tyson Fury, who lives in Hess Bank, so I have a little bit of a soft spot for him, despite what everybody thinks, recently begged the BBC to remove him from the list of nominees for Sports Personality of the Year and asked his supporters not to vote for him with these words. I'm the people's champion and I have no need for verification or any awards. I know who I am and what I've done in the sport. I have the love of the people, which means more to me than all the awards in the world. Now, I'm not sure if Tyson's confidence is a humble confidence. That's not how boxers tend to think. But the point is that he is secure in the love of his fans, and so he has no need of the BBC's awards. To reframe Tyson's words in David's verse, words in 21, 22, I'm God's choice, 
I'm loved by God. And I've no need for any royal pomp or splendor. I know who I am because I know who God is. And so I'm free to act with shame in the sight of the world. Can you see how this works? Can you see how significant this is for us? And this is where we now get to see the importance of taking off his royal robes and dancing in his underwear. Because if you've got a very good memory and you've been here from the beginning, you may just remember that the theme of undressing has been a small but important one in 1 and 2 Samuel. Each time it's an act of either voluntary humility or forced humiliation, a putting off of one status in favour of another. So I've put these references on the sheet, but you can see 1 Samuel 18 verse 4. Jonathan took off his royal clothing as a sign that he was abandoning his claim to the throne in favour of David. In 1 Samuel 17, Saul dresses David in his own tunic in a foreshadowing of the change of kingship that is coming. And in 1 Samuel 19 and 28, Saul's removal of clothing is a tragic sign of his loss of kingship. And David now removes his royal robes to show that he is king. Sorry, to show that God is king. And knowing that God is king, David knows he is nothing at all. And if he's nothing at all, who cares what the servant girls think? That is the joy of humble confidence before the Lord. David knows God. And so he knows himself. The question is, do you? Well, let's conclude. And we've come to the end of this journey of the ark and of the establishment of David's kingdom. He has done it as promised. In 1 Samuel 2, the Lord humbles and exalts. And we'll pick up the story sometime next year in chapter 7. But I want to conclude our time this morning with three reflections on what we've learned this morning about knowing God and knowing ourselves. First is to think with me for a minute about those categories of honour and shame. See, what happens when we don't believe Calvin's wisdom? When we don't base our knowledge of self on knowledge of God? Well, we end up in Michal's miserable position. Look at verse 20 and notice the concern with eyes and sight, how the king of Israel has glorified himself today, disrobing in the sight of the slave girls. If we do not begin with God in order to work out who we are and our place in the world or what our significance is, then we will inevitably use other mirrors and gauges. It might be appearance, desirability, performance, work, status, relationships, achievement, family, friends. But we will look in whatever mirror is close to hand and we will feel, feed our self-perception or we'll feel proud or disappointed. Whenever we care more about what other thinks than what God thinks, we are following Mikael. And this leads to great misery. The, minis- minis- sorry, the misery of envy, of feeling inadequate, of fear of speaking our mind as we stick up for, as we stand out for Jesus in a world that hates him. It's especially acute in cultures where the currency of acceptance is explicitly honour and shame. It's a kind of slavery that holds many Christians back. 
But think how different things are when we know ourselves in relation to God. We have what I've put on the sheet, a humble confidence. See, that phrase, before the Lord, occurs six times in the chapter. David is learning to see himself before the Lord, literally in the eyes of God. He's learning that other people's opinion do not matter. Not in a kind of an arrogant way, as if he really couldn't care less about what people think, but because his only audience is God himself. And the striking thing is the extreme joy he feels. He's a liberated man. He dances his socks off. He cares nothing other than what God thinks. And what God thinks gives him great joy. I wonder if you've ever experienced this yourself. A few years ago, Emma and I were going through a really tough time. It was a tough time in the life of our church. It was 2009, four years after we started this church revitalization church plant. And as is often the case at that stage of a church's life, things felt very unstable. Most of the work was being done by a handful of people. Statistically, this is the time when pastors and their wives pack up and give up. It was a low point. We remember it well. We were working night and day, often to the early hours of the morning. I was neglecting my young family, feeling constantly guilty. There was opposition from all sides, from outside the church, from inside, criticism, unkindness. The church was full of new Christians, which was great, but new and immature Christians who didn't necessarily have the skills to help us and few people who could help those who needed it. The core team was small and overstretched. I was offered antidepressants by my GP. I would spend Saturday night envying the bus drivers who drove past my study window, wishing I could have an easier job, assuming that bus driving is easier. And around this time, I received a long and incredibly helpful letter from a friend who's a pastor in Australia. He and his wife had just been to stay with us. And when they went back home, they sent me this, he sent me this detailed handwritten letter full of encouragements, loving rebukes and advice about leadership, about marriage and family, not neglecting my family, about being patient about growing disciples and training elders and all sorts of brilliant, helpful stuff. And I've still got the letter in a drawer where I keep special letters. But there was a throwaway line that actually struck me the most and made an impact on me at the time. And in the midst of all this advice and wisdom, my friend said this, be caught often singing and skipping through the next 40 years. Be caught often singing and skipping through the next 40 years. And at first I thought, what kind of advice is this? To give someone what I'm going through? Is he just kind of saying, just cheer up and pull yourself together? Well, no, he wasn't. It was a brilliant challenge. To live before the Lord. To be accountable only to him. And if you live before the Lord knowing that you are at one and the same time nothing at all and yet loved completely, covered in the blood of Christ, there is great and lasting joy. 
It is as liberating as dancing in your underwear. And that is how we persevere. That is how David persevered in the face of criticism. But more importantly, that is how Jesus persevered. And so thirdly, I want to talk about the humble king. See, as Nathan reminded us earlier, if we've learned anything from these studies, it should be this. That as we've watched David's kingdom take shape in ancient Israel and all its imperfections, we are seeing a picture, a shadow of the perfections of the kingdom of Christ. As we look at David and his heart and his motives and his victories and his failures, we are seeing foreshadowed for us the pictures of Jesus in his perfection. And when we come to that picture, we notice that Jesus doesn't dance, at least not in the biblical record. Instead, let me with two, leave you with two pictures that we are given. The first is from John 13. It's one time when we're told that Jesus took off his outer garment. Not to dance, but to wash the filthy feet of his disciples. He takes off his outer garments. He stoops down. He gets his hands dirty and wet with the smelly feet of his disciples. And he does this act of humility with joy because of the confidence we have, he has. That John tells us he knows that God has given all things into his hand and he has come from God and is going back to God. And you may remember the reaction of Peter who couldn't cope with this act of humility of the Messiah. But this was Jesus being himself the servant king, liberated before God. But the second picture is this. It's not the robes he takes off, but the status that he throws off. And he keeps on taking off layer after layer of status until he descends to the very lowest point of humility that it's possible to descend to. So that we read in Philippians chapter 2, he made himself nothing at all, taking the very nature of the servant, humbled himself, not just to foot watching, but to the obedience of death, death on a cross, naked, crucified, tortured, humiliated by the entire world. And this is the God who comes to us in Christ. And if we know him, in his humility, then we will know how to live. Because we will know ourselves that we are loved and we are nothing at all, at one and the same time. Know God. Know yourself. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this lesson from your word this morning. And we pray for your forgiveness when we live for, when we crave human approval, and when we see ourselves in the reflected glory and approval and status of our world.
Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he came as a servant. Thank you that when we see him, we are seeing God. And we pray that by identifying with him, our despised, humble servant king, we will learn what it means to be free and to serve you alone in joyful humility. In his name we pray. Amen.